Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, Alex Lynch here. This episode is a two-parter. Much like in the previous two-parter episodes we've had, my guest gave a great deal of writing advice and insight into being a writer and working in writing teams, which I felt was not only fascinating, but also invaluable for people looking to break into writing comedy, and it would have been a shame to lose it simply for time purposes. This time, I am in conversation with the writer Joel Morris. Here is part one. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks. Hello, and welcome to Out of Character, a podcast about sketch and character comedy. My name is Alex Lynch. In this show, I chat to writers and performers from the world of sketch and character comedy, find out what made them venture into it, talk about their characters, maybe meet some of their characters, and generally just shoot the breeze and, more importantly, have a laugh. My special guest for episode 13 is the writer Joel Morris. Hello. Hello. That was nice. I enjoyed that. That's good. Oh, thanks. Sets out your stall. There's no argument. It's lovely. (laughs) So how are you, Joel, first up? Not bad, actually. It's all right, isn't it? It's okay. Um, Where are we? We're sort of on what's supposed to be the slide out of lockdown at the moment and it feels a bit no it feels like everyone's going a bit too fast as in i i get really really overexcited when i meet a person yes outside my house and suddenly everyone's going we must go to portugal went, whoa 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 can we just enjoy <laughs> going beyond my postcode because at the moment that's really exciting oh it turns out i can be quite excited walking around a nearby reservoir <laughs> i don't need to go to peru <laughs> If I got on a train that took more than 10 minutes, I would just be like a dog, like, ah, like panting and excitement. Yeah. Have you kind of been gradually enjoying more and more the the restricted freedom? Yeah, I don't feel it, though. I mean, I've, I've really enjoyed it. I think it's been, I don't know, it's a funny thing as well. I think certainly working in, I'll get philosophical too early, working in telly and things, um, there is a real uh, problem of thinking what you're doing is really, really important. And that you must be away from your family and you must be away from your friends and you must be giving it 24-7 and long hours, and um, which is really easy to get into and, or taking on 20 deadlines at once and juggling them. And, and everyone's really impressed that you're really stressed um, <laughs> or that you're desperate for work and things. I've really enjoyed a year when no one's kind of been doing that. Yeah. And everyone's been going, everyone's been stressed about different things. And obviously, it's a hugely stressful time and hugely difficult, huge tragedy in it. But I've quite enjoyed the feeling of if you say, I might stay at home. No one goes, oh, well, that's it. That's your career over or, or you're a weirdo. I quite, I quite enjoyed sort of sitting, having some time to think. It's been brilliant. Going in forced walks, thinking I'm a writer and I 
had sort of stopped doing the enforced walk thing <laughs> for ideas. I sort of was bustling between meetings and mm. things, but I thought sometimes you want to just go for a walk around the park. You might come back with a thought. <laughs> it's been ages since, since there's had any time for that. So it's been, it's been um, oddly luxurious and kind of, I've got the Stockholm Syndrome thing of thinking, I'm not sure I want to go back to quite how it was. Right, yes. <laughs> I'd like to go back to a bit of how it was. I'd like to people to stop dying, please. Um, but I'd like to maybe have a little bit of, oh, actually you can take some time. Maybe that's just growing older. I don't know. But it's, it's come at just the right time to sort of recalibrate yes. uh, how manic and insane you want to be. And how have you found writing in this in this time <laughs> almost impossible almost impossible <laughs> it is impossible it is so hard and i don't think i'm alone um all anyone's ever wanted i joke with simon evans the mm. stand-up uh, comic uh and he said all he ever wanted this is before the pandemic he said all i want is convalescence the thing where you have been ill but are encouraged to stay in bed for a week and no one expects anything of you. He said, that's the ideal state. You can catch up on some television, do some reading, and no one bothers you, and food is brought to you. Uh, and weirdly, uh, apart from the food being brought to you, that's what it's been like for a year. I've been, been in a state of, you can sit and watch old episodes of of, of, um, of the Chinese detective or BritBox if you want yeah. to. You don't have to do anything. Minders on, it's fine. Um, and everyone has fantasized that if I could just have a minute's break, a minute when no one was expecting anything of me, then I could think straight. And the answer is, No. Because the weird thing, I think, is because it's very hard to think when you're anxious. Oh, yeah. The fight or flight bit of your brain switches off a lot of abstract thought. Mm. Your amygdala goes and you and there's, and there's you're in a state where we've had a whole year of a fire alarm going off in the background. It's like trying to work when there's a, a car alarm going off outside. Yes. Um, it's very easy to get distracted. So I found it really hard. Um, but I've, I've, got, I've got stuff done. But I would, if you'd said to me, okay, you've got a year off inside your house with nothing to do apart from make food and occasionally shop, <laughs> I would have gone, well, that'll be three novels and a two screenplays, everything I've ever wanted. Because <laughs> I think I, I, I used to fantasize about that. I used to fantasize that there would be between jobs, you'd finish a job and you go, oh, I've got two weeks off. Mm. Call my agent and clear the decks and clear it for a month. I'm writing a screenplay. And I'd probably just about get something done at huge speed. We had a year and a bit. Oh, yeah. I'm not sure, actually. As people are coming out, people are starting to say, hey, my things got picked up. Were you secretly writing? Because I was fine. I thought we were all finding it really hard. Um, and I've done, I've done... I'm not saying I haven't done stuff. And probably I'll say, oh, I got something away. And people will go, when were you writing that? Uh, but yeah, I think it's been hugely... It's hard to write when you're not settled, I think. Um, it's a mistake to think that that energy, that nervous energy is particularly useful. I think you need to be thinking clearly. I remember people saying at the especially at the sort of start of lockdown people were like oh well these are perfect conditions for you surely and you're like no yeah and funny enough i mean i i hardly wrote anything last year and then mm. when a job did come up albeit you know if it was small or whatever um then it's kind of like suddenly i could write again it's amazing what a deadline yeah uh, it does like it gives you that impetus when you're just writing for yourself or at least I find when I'm just writing for myself, it's like and no one's asking for it. It's yeah, so hard to actually get anything, <laughs> anything uh, rolling. There's a lack of other people, and I think so. I'm even if you don't collaborate, even if you're a solo writer, you've usually got other people to not even bounce ideas off, but to bump into for a coffee or be in a reception office with and say, what are you working on? Yes. Oh, I've got this great idea about so-and-so. It's a new sitcom and it's about cats. And they go, oh, that's a good idea. Just just that tiny affirmation. And the other thing as well, which I found, which is really interesting, a few of my friends, writer friends found this, is that I sort of rely 
on sort of what we're doing at the moment, talking to people and them going, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. There's the nod, which you go, oh, I'm surprising you. Or, I'm interesting you or mm. I'm delighting you. But all I've talked to is myself and my family for a year and I bore them and I bore myself. <laughs> I've, I've not had an idea for about a year and a bit that everyone hasn't already heard. But if I, if I was put in a, in a, if I went to a production company tomorrow and met some new people, they'd go, oh, I haven't heard that idea about. Um, yeah, you just realised that trapped in your own company, uh, you bore yourself. Yes. And I, I forgot how much, making people laugh is a social act. It's what you learn to do as a kid to, to be popular or to make friends or whatever. And it was, it's a phone call that requires people to pick up. Mm. And when you've been talking to yourself for a year, that might sound like the best way of coming up with ideas to be left on your bloody own bit of space. But actually, it's a it leaves you um, unreflected. And occasionally, I think people, whether you're a performer or a writer, you do need to be reflected back. People need to go. You need to get those little tiny signals, someone's eyebrow raising, going, oh, I hadn't thought of that or whatever. And you're supposed to be interesting people. And for a year and a bit, I think we've all been boring each other a bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, there was always that thing of people saying oh you know never talk about your ideas never share your ideas and it's the opposite oh yeah you need to discuss ideas with with other people because you know it's like there's all the thing of like oh they might steal it it's like no one's going to steal it and also you find your idea you know has been thought of coincidentally by someone else and they didn't steal it it's just yeah. it that idea was somewhere in the cosmos <laughs> And two people grabbed it. Yeah, I think people think that a lot. There used to be a thing when I sort of started out years ago and I was in music and things, that people always said, well, you make your demo tape and you send it to yourself with a stamp on it and a date on it, just to post that no one steals it. And I don't think, <laughs> I'm, maybe I'm being naive, I don't think anyone has ever stolen a demo tape and put it out without telling the person. <laughs> that might have happened in the 50s or something it just literally is a thing that doesn't happen and I think the same thing's true of most ideas and even if someone even if I was at the early stages of an idea and I said I'm thinking unless it was a game show format or something mm. I said I'm thinking of doing a thing about some people who work in an Amazon uh, distribution centre now I can guarantee there are 400 of those being made at the moment and every single one of them will be different and the one that gets made will get made not necessarily because it's the best idea but because it got lucky or it had the right stars in it or that the writer happened to have found something bigger than that idea. If the idea you can describe to someone quickly in a reception room isn't enough of the idea to make it anyway, it's like sort of saying, it's the difference between saying I've had the idea for a table and having the IKEA plans for a table. As in, <laughs> you can't, there's so much more to an idea yes. than the idea. It's the execution and the, the, the technicalities of it. The moment you try and make an idea, you realise how many million decisions you have to make before it can even get to a point you can show it to someone. So I think that, yeah, I think it's fine uh, telling people ideas. And actually, very often, it can st it can do two things. It can stop you giving up because someone goes, yes. that's a great idea. And at some point, you're going to feel lonely and it's a terrible idea. So having the memory of someone saying, what a great idea, really helps. Um, and also... Um, at some point, you're going to have to explain this to someone, whether it's a commissioner or an editor or a script editor or a producer yes. or the audience. You're at some point going to have to perform this idea, whether you're a writer or a performer. And your first audience is very often a friend. And that, and you might find that the friend doesn't have to say anything, but halfway through explaining it, you suddenly realise you don't know what your idea is. Yes. And <laughs> ideas feel really good in your head, but as they come out of your mouth, they all sound terrible. <laughs> And it's a really good process to go, oh, God, this sounds terrible. Oh, God, I've got to fix that. <laughs> that yeah. I, I found that a lot with um, when I was writing on 
things like the news quiz. Obviously, at the be- at the beginning, um, where you're just writing gags, yeah, and you're yeah, just going to the producer, and it's like it's fine. No one else is hearing these. They could be terrible, but only one person's reading them. And then in the second half, when you're in the writer's room with them, and you're sort of throwing ideas around, and you throw an idea out, and as you as you're saying it, not only is it not funny, but it doesn't make any sense. But you can't, you know, you can't stop. You've already, yeah, you've uh, committed to pitching this now, and it's yeah. like, oh god! And then it, because at the time, the regular writers could obviously kind of shoot each other's ideas down because they know each other, and it's kind of like, oh no, that doesn't work. But when you're yeah. brand new, and <laughs> they don't want to be, you know, yeah. harsh, so you just get a silence, <laughs> just somewhat worse. <laughs> Yeah, you want you want yeses. I used to like writers' rooms. I've been in mainly most of the writers' rooms I've been in have been really nice and encouraging. But uh, I always liked either yes and or the yes and that's hiding a no. I quite like that. Where <laughs> I've, I've, the bad writers' rooms I've been in, you get silence or you get a no. And the good writers' room, I suppose you have to be half mm. decent. The idea has to be half decent yes. for it to be worth saving. But they'll take a half decent idea that's failing in the room and will say, and will play an improv game with it, yes and, and go, oh, what about if? And suddenly the idea comes back to life. And also the other lovely thing about a writer's room, and again, why I think collaboration and saying your ideas out loud is important. Mm. When we were doing Mitchell and Webb, yes. A lot of the time we'd come in and we all knew each other's sense of humour there. That was a, probably a thing that might never happen again is it was a very, uh, everyone was from the same kind of background. It wasn't the world's most diverse room, um, but everyone had the same sense of humour. So everyone could write in David and Rob's voice. So it would feel like they'd made the whole thing. I think that was a, an advantage for a show that was very authored and in their voices, but probably now would be frowned upon. But it was, so everyone knew each other. So it was a very, very safe place to be. And Everyone come from different backgrounds. No one had been to the same schools or anything. We'd all come from different places and different classes and things. Yes. You throw ideas in, and sometimes the top three ideas that you'd had that you thought were absolute bankers, the ones you went, these are going to go in, would go to almost nothing. And probably those were the ideas that were very, very like the kind of things you'd expect those guys to write. Mm. So the point was that probably they had those. They already had those in the bank because they'd written them or they, they'd done them already. It was very often the ideas you didn't have any confidence with that were down the bottom of your list of 20 ideas. It was ideas 19 and 20 that would suddenly catch fire around the room. Mm. They'd often be prefaced by, I've got this terrible idea about so-and-so, but it's only half there. And that would be when everyone else's sudden hysteria at how mad your idea was (laughs) would make the thing work. And I think that I didn't realise how much voices that weren't expected came out of that Simon Kane was really good at that he did lots of the oh, weirder yeah. sketches of Simon's and his were always delivered at the end of a day where I don't know Sam and Jesse had delivered something beautiful and crafted and John Finnamore had done a beautiful crafted sketch and we'd done something sort of mildly satirical and crafted and Simon would just go I've got this idea that Daniel Day-Lewis is frightened of his own moustache <laughs> and then he'd sort of mumble it into his chest and go but it won't go anywhere and then they'd all burst out <laughs> laughing and that would become a five minute sketch but it would always be that and I think it was a perfect example of how if you do share your ideas, sometimes a really stupid idea that you dismiss is exactly what the room needs because actually it's not uh, in its bib and tucker, it's not in its best suit, it's not dressed up and it's not polished for acceptance. It's a dumb idea. But suddenly the relief of hearing something really dumb yeah. inspires the room to... Every, everyone just rushes... Everyone needs to rush in and shore up a stupid idea to say, oh, but we could do that by making that character uh, be so-and-so. What if there's an interviewer who's really nervous about asking him and suddenly a set of... Uh, good script writing techniques would come in to shore up a stupid idea yes. and i think that's a really good example of a room where everyone was on the same page and trusted each other so that you knew you'd get giggles off a stupid idea rather than get out um and i think you don't get that sometimes in a room where no one knows each other 
How many of you were in the room, roughly? There was a core of about eight of us who would do it. And again, it just feels like a thing that would never happen. It's really funny. You look back on it and um, I saw someone talking about a documentary about the making of a Disney, an 80s Disney or 90s Disney, oh, yeah. a sort of Little Mermaid era Disney. And they said, oh, God, I've watched this behind the scenes. documentary. So many white men. Mm. And you want to go, yeah, that was that literally was the world. That was absolutely normal. No one would have noticed. No. Um, and, and I know anyone who was outside that room really noticed, but within that room and within the industry, no one noticed for decades. No. Uh, and we had, I mean, the, it was a very undiverse room, but it was a really nice room uh, of people who I think have been pulled in from sketch writing from all over with a little core of people who've probably been at Cambridge and Footlights yes. with, with sort of... Um, David and Rob, a classic old-fashioned BBC Footlight-style sketch show. Of course, yeah. But there were voices from outside there. There were, there were, oh my God, there were people from state schools and things in there, and uh, and gay people, and it was, it was, it was what for its time, wildly diverse. There were everyone was called Dan. <laughs> everyone had the same jumper on and the same collar, and there were no women, and it was awful. Um, and then actually towards the, towards the last couple of series, because it was starting to creep in, with a, there were a women who were writing Abby Burdess and people were writing on yeah. it, and it was yeah, I think that changed it a bit, but. It was a quite a sealed room, and it what it felt like. Uh, probably the reason why it was a nice or a nicely old-fashioned show was it felt like the way those things had been done back in the sixties, and it was just a sketch show done by a gang. Yes, I was talking to uh, someone from America. It was a friend of a friend who'd come over from America and said, "How do I get work in the British comedy industry? I'm looking for work to working on shows." And I went, "Oh God, um, I don't know." Uh, <laughs> And then I realised, I went, oh, actually, said, what you're thinking of is a thing they have in America called the Staffing Round. Oh, right. Where they commission the shows, they decide which shows they're going to do, and then they put the call out to all the agents and said, who wants to work on this show set in a sports goods shop or whatever? And everyone comes in. And they've all got roles and ranks, and they just join in. And it's staffed like an industry. Oh, my God. We're looking for, like, like putting a crew together for a film. You yes. need a lighting director and things. They need, we need a showrunner, we need so-and-so, we need all these people put together uh, some staff writers I mean, people at different levels it's very industrialised and they said well how do you do that over here and I went oh you get work in British comedy by having known someone 10 years ago either you were at college with them or in Edinburgh or in a sketch group or or at Ealing Live as in the people who work together in British comedy tend to be people who met 10 years back so I said oh if you come over here trying to get a job you sort of needed to be here 10 years ago because then you would have met mm. Sasha Baron Cohen and now be his writer. And you tend to notice that, that the way that British comedy works is to do with mates. And it feels like it can feel like a closed shop to a lot of people, which is mm. a real problem for diversity and access. Yes. Because the question isn't, you can decide, as the comedy industry did recently, that it doesn't want to be as racist and sexist as it has been for ages. But it'll <laughs> take 10 years or take five years yeah. for it to filter through because we don't have a thing where you can say, this year we're doing a more diverse hiring policy. You can try and do that, but it will be completely scuppered by the fact that everyone wants to work with people they were doing shitty shows at the Hen and Chickens with <laughs> 10 years ago because they trust those people. Yeah. That's when you met your writers, collaborators, cast. Um, we come through a a sort of um, let's put the show on right here kind of training program where everyone you work with is someone you met years ago. Um, and it's got its advantages, but it's also got massive disadvantages when it comes to sort of things where someone says, why was it a bunch of the same kind of people making that show? And you went, because we all knew each other. <laughs> and that was that was part of the industry. Definitely. Well, it's also that thing of like, when you all know each other and you're all kind of in sync and you have the same taste, then it doesn't so much feel like a kind of horse designed by committee. Yeah. You know, does it? It's- totally. There's, there's an organicness to it, which I think is what a lot of Americans love about 
Anglophile Americans love about British comedy mm. is it feels organic and it feels like shared private jokes. It feels like when when it happens in America, when that, that shared sensibility happens in something like SCTV, that's what John Candy, oh, yes. Eugene Levy kind of thing, it's really rare. And that thing where they go, they're just making it to the laugh. And that's the feel that I always think SCTV reminded me of absolutely over here, like the Scottishness, oh, yes. the Canadians all having a gang. They had a gang and they had their own language. And you went, wow, this is this is very unusual in America because America tends to uh, produce a factory system. Yes. Like the Saturday Night Live has a sort of feel, but it's a feel of that show, not a feel of who's necessarily writing on it. I yes. can't tell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And over here, the big advantage is you get that voice. Well, it's, it's very kind of uh, not, not mechanical. No, uh, industrialised. Yeah. It's a process. And... Uh, and I must admit, I, I like the organic feel. And I think that one of the hardest things to do, which people have been trying to do because of necessary changes to the industry, is try and create an organic, try and create organic rooms that are diverse and, and aren't just people who met at school or met at college or whatever. Yes. That's a huge change for the British comedy industry because it's never worked that way before. Um, and I think it I, I don't think it's going to be, a, we're talking about the past here. I don't think it's going to be a problem going forwards. But I think that when people bring up that stuff, they went, oh my God, it's insane. There's 82% of, comedy writers are men or whatever something stupid like that going well that's just because it reinforced itself over decades and decades and decades and yeah and it was very hard to break because everyone everyone just employed their mates exactly didn't you say that um a while back that you wrote on man stroke woman yeah but there was there were very few women writing on that show I was thinking about how unthinkable that was. Manstroke Woman was a great show to write on, really good training. I mean, to be honest, it's the kind of show they should just they should always have a Manstroke Woman on television. Oh, totally. As in a contemporary sketch show with a good little cast who are... And that was actually the, the revolutionary thing about Manstroke Woman. It was, it was a, a 50-50 male-female cast. That was what was unusual about yeah. it. Um, which enabled you to write couple sketches. And you're thinking, how have we had all these sketches about dinner parties on the two Ronnies? Without the cast being fifty, that's why the Pythons had to dress up as yes. women. You regularly require the the actual makeup of forty nine percent, fifty one percent of the Earth requires a diverse gender cast, um, and that's just gender. Mm. Um, but but what was revolutionary about it is it had a, a set of actors who could work together well, and you could do as three set three couples. Yes. But the writers' room, I think, was when I look back on it, I think Laura Solon was the only only woman in that room, and that was a thing called Manstroke Woman. You're thinking, surely half of the sketches should you should have just got everyone from green wing and yes smack the pony and things in um because it's not like it's not like those women weren't there as well that was what's really weird um but it was just a habit i think there was a there was a great deal of blindness to it yes because because of that thing about default if you're the default person if you are the uh the default skin in the game you don't notice that actually you look like me and and yeah there, there were more there were generally in, in rights rooms more people called dan than there were people of colour or women. Uh, and that was just normal. It sounds like I'm talking about a million years ago now because it's so unthinkable. I just <laughs> It's funny looking back on it and thinking, I don't think anyone within that world in production or anything really noticed. And that's terrible, isn't it? Yeah, it's that thing, as you say, you, you, want, you still definitely want a show like that and there should always be a show like that to kind of find new, new talents, new yeah. writers, new performers and just kind of... I don't know. It, it it sort of seems to be like, oh well, it was really bad that we were like that before, so we're just not going to do that anymore. It, but rather than like you know adapting it or changing, it, it's like no, no, we're just not, we're just not going to have shows like that. We're just not going to. You know. I know it's 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 very strange. I think that the the idea of how how good it would be to have. I mean, I, I don't know that that again. Talk about positives, things that do happen via America's system of employing diversely and 
being very flexible yeah. means that they're constantly uh, SNL is constantly feeding new faces and new talent mm. from diverse backgrounds into into the comedy system whereas I think it takes a bit longer over here I mean it's happening I mean I, I'm talking about this as if it's an issue it is happening it's changing I don't think we'll be looking in five years at a comedy scene that looks anything like the one it does at the moment but we are in the legacy of it only having uh, me and all the Dans in it for ages um, and that's that's and that is uh, exactly how it should be but I think it's interesting how it's taken longer to change than it would do if there was an, in, an industry that was employing people uh, on a on a staffing system like in America well it's just trying to get the, the, ba- the ballad isn't it mm. and you know you want to kind of take the good things of like American shows but it's like we've we've had so many things where we've tried to do the American shows but you know they have a budget they have a lot of money the the the, the various it is a very different industry and and it's really funny talking to people who who've either done both of them moved between the two of them it's yeah. not the grass isn't greener on either side um and the the american system requires an awful lot of money and therefore requires an awful lot of sales and big markets so there's no point there's no point staffing up a british writers room for a thing that's going to get 1 million viewers it's not worth it it, it, it wouldn't pay back um and the american system is is very you will be salaried mm. beyond the dreams of avarice compared to a British writer. <laughs> but the flip side of that, having spoken to people who've I've, I've done shows run by American showrunners, yes, and a lot of them say really nice stuff like British writers are better. And I went, don't be stupid. You, you about the Simpsons thing? Went, no, no, no. A British writer can write a half-hour script, and a lot of American writers can't because they've been in big rooms where all they've had to do is do the gags or to do or to have one idea and be credited as. Uh-huh producing consulting writers he said the, the number of american writers who can take an idea and structure it from beginning to end mm. is very small that tends to be the job of a, that seems to be a showrunner will be able to do that yes. but most writers will have very little experience of that the other thing i noticed as well is that american pilots are so brilliant mm. because every single american writer has written so many pilots yes they're amazing at the first episodes <laughs> of things so you watch the first episode of everything and you go oh my god i could never write something that good and thinking yeah, but that's all they've practiced. It's like someone who's just really good at scales on the guitar. Yeah. They've practiced a lot at this one thing. They can't write a song, but, they but they can, they're amazing at introducing characters in six lines. This is all... They're, they're incre- it's like they've, they've exercised one arm. They've got this huge bicep. Um, and every time I watch a great American pilot and I just put my head in my hands and go, God, I couldn't write that well, thinking, yeah, but I don't go to the gym every day and lift that weight, which is, can I sell the first episode of something? That's a really interesting way of looking at it. I mean, I remember... I God, I remember talking to an American writer once and they so they talked about a show that they did that was like their show and they went, Oh, it was a really small writing team though. There was only six of us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think I think it's it's useful. I mean there's I think one of the hard things to do when you're writing, and it's very strange that the British system favours that authorship model. Mm. Whereas the America it's it's to do with the difference is that it's, it's technically it's something called. I only found this out really recently. It's called work for hire, and America works on a work for hire thing. It's a factory thing where you you work and you are hired to do that work, like when you get a builder around or a plumber. It's a job. You are paid for the job. Yes, but you don't own that house afterwards that you built. Whereas the British thing is a copyright authorship system where you write something and you own it and you get residuals. Right, yeah. and it's why the American system can work because they can employ all those people, but those people don't have a claim on the IP afterwards, and it's why. Disney and Marvel and DC exist. All those writers and creators don't own that yes. stuff. It's owned by the corporation that hired them. And that then means they can do massive things like crossovers and stuff like that. Whereas, if you notice, there was a really good thing. The Lego did a game 
called Lego Dimensions about five yes. years ago. And it was a mashup of loads of different, a video game, mashup of loads of different IP. Uh-huh. And at the, and at, so you had Bat, Batman and Homer Simpson and Scooby-Doo could go on an adventure together. It was a great game for oh, kids. Yeah. Exactly how kids play with toys on the floor, on the carpet. All the toys could mash up together. And they had Doctor Who in it. And the credits for the copyrights for Doctor Who went on for most of the game. Because <laughs> everyone who'd written an episode of Doctor Who owned that episode. Oh so my if God. they wanted to have... Yeah. Uh, K9 in it and a Dalek you had to thank the estates of those writers whereas they could have Batman and Wonder Woman and just say DC Mm. and I think that's a very different approach to making stuff and I think the American uh, approach is very much to do with with, uh, you come and you do a day's work and you work for me and you're a contributor in the factory that makes this program and you'll be very very well paid for that and we'll buy you out we'll pay you for that whereas the British version is everyone is a little uh, is is sitting like J.K. Rowling in a, on a on a table yes. uh, writing their book, hoping it'll be a bestseller. Uh, and it's a very different uh, uh, fantasy of being a writer in the UK because the idea is that you'll have your hit and you'll own it. Um, and I think those two things are very different. Yeah, that's fascinating. Which is why the American team thing, why the American teams thing, I think works as in you're part of a bigger thing. There's a bigger budget and stuff for this, but you'll be very well paid for that. That that's your job. Whereas I think we treat it as a. Um, a calling or a hobby, <laughs> yeah. um, and it's and it's funny because I think we're we're just about to crash into that with with Netflix and Amazon and these big American companies that you can go and work for, who will then go well, of course we own it all, yeah, and you go oh oh we don't do that over here because and, and and they'll be looking at you going well I take it you've got a huge Malibu beach house so you'll be entirely satisfied and you go no. <laughs> No, that wasn't the deal. <laughs> no, the deal was I came up with a thing for you and you gave it back to me. Oh God, yeah. And I think those two things are those two things I think are, are, are clashing at the moment. And uh, there'll be solution. There'll be solutions to be paying everyone loads because uh, there's big money in those those things that will change. But it's a fundamentally different way of looking at uh, ownership of stuff you come up with. I think one of the things that that fundamentally I am now I think of myself as sort of older in the industry. Growing up watching those that generation of writers who appear to have done very, very well out of it. And they had their nice houses. And there's the great photo I used to put on the wall to get angry at, which is Johnny Spate, who wrote Off Garnet to the oh, yes, Park. Yeah. And it's him after it's a picture of him with his Rolls Royce after he'd written six episodes of To Death Two Park. <laughs> and he went, Six episodes on what was it, BBC Two? And he's got a roller. Oh my god. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, 
I've talked to people who've gone over to... I talked to the Veep guys when they went over to, to take what was basically the thick of it over to, oh, yeah. to America. And I was really jealous. And I was at a launch do that they had. And I was talking to them. And they're, they're all people I knew from the, the scene. They, they used to sit on the cafe tables next to me in cafes writing the thick of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I said, God, it's amazing what you've gone and done. And they said, it's brilliant. And they said, and one of the Tony Roach said, what have you done this year? And I went, oh, God, I've cobbled together a career. I've done this and this. And this pilot didn't come off. And that and some advertising for science and a radio thing that didn't come off. And three things. And he said, I said, what have you done? He went, Veep. And he looked at me like he was really envious that I'd done 46 things this year, none of which had come off or all of which had paid £200. Oh, wow. He said, I'd love that. He said, I'm not used to being completely owned by one programme, which is how it is, again, in America. You are you're working for a show and it takes up all your time. Um, and he's got, he got really, really well paid for it. He said, but I think I, he, he was getting really... Um, jonesing for cobbling together a career out of loads of patchwork of different ideas that would have kept his probably his brain mm. livelier and i think that yeah again it's it's the grass is greener on both sides there's a lot of money and respect and kudos yeah absolutely in being one of those big american shows but i think you would i suspect it could get quite crushing if you were constantly yeah. in that machine for eight months nine months of a year well it's very cutthroat as well isn't it yeah you could suddenly just not have a job. Exactly, and I think I think it's 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 incredibly. You read those again. It's so stupid. You read the memoirs. I read Rob Long's conversation with my agent. Guy was a Cheers runner. Go. This is depressing. This is awful. This is a howl of pain. I listened to script notes the Craig Mosin podcast and go. God, just the politics of being out there in that that industry sounds really scary. And then you compare your little your little sort of rainy existence on this little island where there's a little bit of work here and a little bit of work there and you might get to have a little meeting with some new people tomorrow and things and just go oh actually I think both of them look attractive to the other person I think part of me goes I'd love a slick thing where I knew what I was doing from week to week but I quite like the again actually coming out of lockdown I'm really looking forward to meeting some new people which is one of the things that you do when you're a writer for hire you're always on new jobs and you're learning new names and going to different production offices and projects are always changing um yeah i think i've missed that a bit you're you're you're, you're basically more of a a, 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 a like a, a paratrooper dropped in <laughs> it's a little bit more exciting but hurry this offer can't last forever despite what you might have read in book eight of aristotle's physics or book 12 of the metaphysics newbies windows just off the a999 between home base and the gypsies newbies windows clearly a better standard of window to rewind a little bit further back because what i'd quite like to talk to you about is um family examiner yeah uh bob odenkirk's favorite book yeah that's been a nice surprise this year that's been really weird i think (laughs) bob odenkirk going mad for the family examiner is one of the funniest things that's happened this year because obviously he's a massive (laughs) massive hero from mr show and back all sort of things and he's tim and eric and loads of stuff that we just were huge influences on writing family um i think this is down to robert popper who has always been a big approbator of the family examiner and when we first started family robert was the first person yeah, almost the first person who got in touch and said, this is brilliant, because it's right up Robert's really? street. Uh, I remember he took me in the family gang, which is me, Jason Hazley, Alex Morris, my brother, and Rob Halstead, out for a curry. He and Peter Serafinovich said, come out for a curry, because we think you're brilliant. And we went for a meal with them, and they we were giggling over the curry. He said, oh, you love family examiners. So we've, we've, we've made this thing called Look Around You. 
and that we when they oh described it and I said this sounds like the best thing ever and then we went back to Pete's flat afterwards and got drunk and he showed us it on a VHS cassette and then we all oh. went home and felt really bad because it was so brilliant we thought it would be like it does when someone <laughs> says we've done something really brilliant you went I hope it's shit and it wasn't it was completely <laughs> spectacular and we went home really embarrassed going yeah we're not as good as that and it was yeah so we, we'd always come alongside each other they were doing look around you when we were starting family uh, and we'd bump into each other and make each other laugh and they always really really got it um, and mm. I think uh, so Robert still tells people it's his favourite book and I think if he was working with Odenkirk on something and said it's my favourite book and Odenkirk hadn't heard of it ordered a copy oh. off or Robert ordered him a copy off eBay and gave it to him and Odenkirk said this is the best thing I've ever read and just started ordering copies off eBay and giving them to his friends and becoming this sort of little uh, he's a one man PR thing out in uh, in America I don't know <laughs> I haven't heard any other effects of it yet maybe everyone else has hated it it's just Bob but he's he was so <laughs> nice about it uh, and I think the Anglo thing of it he really likes it's a Python-y thing that it must have echoes of the stuff he likes uh, he's gone mad for it and he was really nice when we I think that had happened just before we decided we we're republishing a 20th anniversary from yes. the Examiner thing this year. And I think we were doing that before Bob popped his head up. But actually, it worked out really well together because then we could say to him, oh, we're republishing it. And then therefore, he's being nice about it publicly, knowing that you don't have to go and find a secondhand copy somewhere. He can G it up and hopefully spread what he th- sees yeah. as spreading the word, uh, which is really, well, I mean, you couldn't ask for anything nicer than that, could you? It's lovely. Yeah, it does seem to be... Um yeah, some some of the Americans I definitely love because I remember listening to that Rule of Three episode with Josh Weinstein. Yeah, and he was really praising it. Josh came looking for us. He sort of headhunted us. He wanted to find out who had written the Family Examiner, which seems like a really strange thing. But when we first started, it was the internet. It was new internet comedy. Was Charlie Brooker, The Onion, and us, and about three other people yes. uh, who were doing it. And we had there was a feeling amongst the internet people, as in as far as you knew anyone on the internet, that a lot of people were doing it to be a bit grand and showy off. And there used to be all these websites which would have one joke on them and then three pages yes. about the guys who made it. And, hey, this is Jeff with the amazing hat. And you went, oh, literally, you've made one joke and now you're doing the story of how we made the one joke. And we said we'd do the opposite. So we didn't put our names on it. We, we didn't say who'd made it. And the idea was it would just arrive from nowhere and no one would know who'd done it. And there was some speculation oh, about wow. whether it was someone from British comedy or whatever. And we really liked that. Anon- anonymity and we didn't put our names on the cover of the book and I think we're we're named in the prelims very very small and I, I think recently I worked out that I've published 40 or 50 books I think my name's on about four of them it's just it's a <laughs> habit of just either being a ghostwriter or 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 just thinking it was it was unseemly to pop your head above the parapet and say you'd written this and so our names aren't on it and so he went I love this thing I've seen the website but I don't know who's made it um, so he put feelers out in the UK and tracked us down um, and said he wanted to work with us uh, on, on a children's program he was doing that was really great. Uh, but yeah, he just he he found us and there was a sort of vibe about who are these guys, uh, and the joke was it we weren't anybody. I've still got a CFAX screen grab from when CFAX was a thing. It's how long ago this was. <laughs> CFAX. Someone had worked out who we were, and the answer is nobody, and had done it as an exclusive <laughs> story. The, the identity behind the family examiner has been revealed to be, and it was because me and my brother had been in a band, and Jason had been in a band. We could go, it's the guy from Ben and Jason, the guy from Canada. And I went, that means nothing to anybody. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it was sort of they had this expose that it was three musicians and their mate who wow. you hadn't heard. I hadn't heard of any of us. It was it was a very bad expose. But um, yeah, <laughs> that feels like a long time ago that you would have a career defining thing you put out, but not put anything about yourself or any contact details on it. Ah, oh, I kind of wonder. 
whether doing something like that would still garner attention, but everyone, but everyone's too kind of like afraid to. Well, not afraid, but I, I mean, well, I, I mean, I'd be afraid because I'd be like, if it was good, it's like, oh shit, I should have put my name to that. Yeah, I think it's... it was. It was a sign <laughs> of how much no one was doing it. I mean, we were. I think I might be wrong. I think we were, aside from TV, go home, the first mm. internet comedy thing to get a book deal because the onion existed as a, as, a, as a proper newspaper in new york before yes i think we were the first people who basically all it was was the internet charlie had done it with tv home and we done it and we knew mm. I, I knew charlie from from the early 90s charlie uh, uh was just someone who was hanging around at computer magazines and things and i used to occasionally go and do shifts there and things i would knew him from when i was at college uh, and he was really funny but he had big ideas Zepatron was meant to be a content providing company I think that didn't exist we will do anything like the goodies anything anytime we will write some comedy for you whether you want a game show or whatever yes. and that was his idea and he built that from that but he was very um, plugged into the idea of saying look I make stuff for whatever you want um, whereas I thought well don't do it and I was saying to him we, we wrote some stuff Framley sort of started when it started when we were at school mm where we've done I've got early in the new edition and the, the complete edition there, there's photographs and pages from from early family which is like stuff done in yes when I was at school and college mocked up front pages that never went anywhere we've been thinking about it for ages but we've written some stuff for Charlie I knew Charlie I knew TV Go Home was going really well and it was great and we all laughed at it mm. so the four of us got together and we just we were mates from school got together we wrote a load of material for Charlie and sent it to him I said do you want any of this for TV Go Home and I knew a couple of people who was TV Go Home stringers who'd sent jokes to TV Go Home. They'd used it, like writing yeah. to Viz. Yeah, it felt like writing to Viz. And you're saying, please print my thing. And he <laughs> sent a lovely email back. It's really short. And he said, this is really good. And you cunts know it's really good. Fuck off. Get your own website. <laughs> and it was exactly what you needed to hear. It was exactly what someone should say. Is it, Why are you coming to me and asking for permission? What he was saying, effectively, it's the Wild West. Anyone can do this. And I, so I dropped him a line back. I said, very funny. I said, so I said, how did you start TV Go Home then? And he literally told me what a website was and how much it cost to get a domain name. Uh, back then it was about 20 quid. So I bought it <laughs> and then said to the guys, should we fill this up? And the th- the thing we thought about filling it up with was was this just joke we'd had for ages about a really boring, mad local paper. That was kind of, I only realised afterwards, was inspired by not only there's a really good page in the brand new Monty Python book, which is hmm. uh, John Cleese as a mayor with Stratton must rule move with the time, says mayor, which I thought was the funny. It's not even a funny joke. <laughs> it was so boring. It really made me laugh. <laughs> and then years after we'd done family, I was going through drawers in my family home and I found my dad had been a local paper journalist back in the 60s. Uh, and I found he'd done a mock-up. He and his friends had done a mock-up of their local paper using the local paper's printing press. So it was on newsprint. It was all the right... It was, yeah. it was before Photoshop. They'd cut up photos and things. And they'd made a piss-take local paper. And it had like, I don't know, the whole town was flooded by doing Photoshop on the front. and doing, doing photo editing oh. on the front. And jokes and fake adverts. And I, went, I must have seen that when I was about five uh, lying That's around the house. And I think... Great. When I was little, I thought that was the funniest thing I'd ever seen because it looked like a real paper. And when you're a kid, before Photoshop and before Quark and things, you couldn't do that. So my dad had done it, done it with his mates on hot metal and they'd made this thing. And I think what I found funny about it was the huge waste of time <laughs> of using all the facilities of a real newspaper to do something stupid. Uh, and I still find that essentially the funniest thing. When when Ben Justin did the Ladybird books, the joke there for me was using that lovely Ladybird factory 
oh, with the same yes. printing presses that were that had been moved out to Italy. So we tracked them down and got them to print it. So to use that beautiful <laughs> facility, these incredible colour printing, but these beautiful paintings <laughs> to do stupid jokes felt like exactly the same joke as. Because the thing with Framley is every page of that took as long to design as a real paper. That was the only joke. That was the only trick with it. As in, how do you make it like a local paper? It takes ages. It takes longer than most local papers do. <laughs> uh, but it took ages to make. Um, it was insane. I don't think I've ever been paid less than the year we spent making Framley. That's good advice, by the way. I mean, it's terrible career advice. Um, when I look back on my career and go, what are you known for? And the answer is anything I didn't get paid for. <laughs> anything i starved doing unfortunately is oh i love that and you went yeah because it was honest and it was sincere and it was it was done for love and people people can smell when it's done for love and they like yeah. it more um and they will eventually that's a nice thing to look they will eventually reward you and pay you for it but god doing it going i can't believe how little i think i got paid three thousand pounds for writing and designing illustrating family <laughs> oh. i think it, i think it was it was just over 10 grand between us all i think uh it was it was it was a time and it took a year. I mean I had to take a year. I was illustrating I was an illustrator at the time, so I was doing illustration work between it. So I managed to just about get over minimum wage that year. But I remember thinking oh, wow. I really want to do this and this feels really important, but I've never been poorer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's kind of wonderful. The car park warehouse. We've got car parks piled up to the rafters. And that means spaces, ramps, lifts, stairwells, barriers, ticket machines, silhouette thief posters, one-way systems, uniforms, noise, smell, and levels. Over 500 different types of car park in stock while stocks last. And just look at our prices. Car Park Warehouse, just off the A999, because being on it would be insane. Car Park Warehouse, free parking except in the display models. Were you working as an illustrator at the time then? That was your job? Yeah, I'd done. I always wanted to be a writer. Jason and I had promised we would be writers when we were at school, and then we sort of yes. didn't, didn't do it. Did it for a tiny bit when we came out of school. Uh, worked for TV for about a year, maybe on and off uh but then there was no money in it as everyone's always found it was really hard to make a little you sold a sketch for 45 quid and then you never saw any more work for another six months it was really hard so we both went off and got proper jobs i worked in a shop for about 10 years jason worked jason used to sell ad space for a local paper so he knew loads about that when we were doing family <laughs> but we all went off and got oh, jobs oh i love those ads like my favorite yeah. my favorite one my favorite one is still talk to my horse while i finish this ironing <laughs> That's my favourite, that is my favourite ad in the whole book. Oh, I can't feel my legs. Will you feel them for me? You will when you feel them. 0906-520-760. One of the the nicest things we did was we did those sort of sexy... There was a lot of that around at the time. It was just post, <laughs> post-lad post culture. And yes. it wasn't questioned. There were a lot of sort of quite... I think they wouldn't be in local papers and magazines as much now. Certainly the back of magazines was just full of quite explicit phone lines. And it was when sort of mobile oh, phones yeah, and stuff yeah. was just coming in. <laughs> premium rate phone lines. There was a lot of that about. And we took the piss out of it. And I really enjoyed writing those because it was just... It was an attempt to... We'd had a rule at the beginning of Framley that we sort of, in inverted commas, wouldn't swear. 
because it was too easy to be offensive. Yes. So we used to hide the offence. We want we wanted to swear because no one we weren't doing it for anybody until Penguin asked us to publish it. We weren't doing it for anybody. So we said we can be as rude <laughs> as we like, but the paper itself won't be rude because it's too easy to put the headline with. I used to hate that thing where we go fucking arsehole voted as mayor. Went, no, that's not a local paper wouldn't do that. No. So we'd hide the hide the swearing in small ads, and the joke there was that someone had phoned in with a small ad, sworn, and the idiot in charge had just typed it up. I loved that joke. <laughs> that the swearing was hiding. And then also they take an adverts which were full of swearing and no one had checked it. So that so yes. the por- the porny ads could be that. But I remember doing a load of those ads and then doing a load of those ads for Viz when we got employed by Viz. We did they said, Can you do some of your sex line ads? We had loads of them for Viz. And I at the time knew someone who, because she'd run out of money, was working in that industry. And I went for oh, yeah. a, I went for a drink with her and all her friends who all worked in the sort of sex line industry they were answering calls and they, they weren't they weren't in the the, the, the full on sex industry but they were sort of manning those phone lines yes. and they said god we laugh at those we laugh at those so much so we love that said, and I thought if you can do a joke aimed at someone that that person laughs at then yeah. that's the best sort of joke uh, I really like the fact that people who, who worked manning those lines found those jokes funny and you went oh right so it wasn't mean yes. it was silly and I, th- I think that's always important I, I've, loads of local journalists really really liked Framley we used to get in trouble our local paper there was a guy at the local paper where we'd grown up who loved Framley because it was a joke about where he worked, basically. We always wanted you yes. to be able to see the journalists and know that they were having a hard time and underpaid and overworked. And he loved <laughs> And he kept trying to get interviews with us and put them in when the book got published. Their local boys have done this, this thing. And he did a big interview with us and he, he put it in front of the editor and said, these local boys have done well, they've done something about, about, about you. And the editor said, oh, right, what's this? And opened the book. And the first page of the book, the, the frontispiece, was a picture of the offices of the fictional family examiner, <laughs> which I'd done by standing outside the offices of this paper, my old local paper, and taking a picture of the office with the editor's car parked outside. <laughs> and he went, he absolutely hit the roof and said, we're not carrying this and banned us from being covered in a local paper. <laughs> oh, wow. But yeah, oh it was because his car was parked in the picture. <laughs> I went, That's oh, right, yeah. brilliant. I don't know why I was expecting you to get behind this as a project. <laughs> So when you came to do the Ladybird books, did you kind of get into that sort of family mindset again? A hundred percent. It was a way of doing something we'd already done um, and knew we could do well. Uh, in fact, we even went back. We'd done loads of books in the interim, but most of the books we'd done in the interim weren't done with our editor from Framley. And the editor we'd done these other books with took us back to him and said, you need to do this with Roland because this is the same thing again. This is, he he believed in us from the beginning, said, this guy we've been working with said, I'll pass you back to Roland because he needs to be the guy you do these with because he and you work really well together on these. And he was an astonishing facilitator and got us stuff we would never have got. He dealt with the fact that we were dealing with a really, really big brand mm. that was worth loads of money um, <laughs> and and had a reputation and was a children's brand. As in, I'd say yes. at the beginning, said, do you want us to make up a fake logo? I I can't the idea of yellow ladybird, as in so that people wouldn't pick them up by mistake and think they were real ladybird books. And he managed to persuade them to say, this isn't funny unless it's a completely <laughs> identical extension of the brand, which was pure family thinking. It needs to look like the real thing. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I'm a big believer in that. If you're going to do a parody, it has to look exactly the same. I still get annoyed every time someone sends me an SNL sketch parody and it's an advert and it's three and a half minutes long 
and I want to scream. Oh, yeah. The last time there was a three and a half minute long advert was in 1958. I don't know why people think that movie trailers are five minutes long. Yeah, it just it, it absolutely. I'm such a stickler. I'm such a Nazi for this. I go, well, that's not funny then. Uh, it drives me mad. I, we used to, we did adverts for Mitchell and Webb. We did a spoof Apple ad or something, and we realised oh, yes. it had to be it had to be 25 seconds long and have six words in it. And I went, oh my God, this is, you're not allowed to do, gentlemen, do you need a so-and-so? That's, what you're doing then is you're doing an impression of sketches you saw when you were a kid. Yes. And so much of comedy is you impersonating stuff you loved before or you learned doing. So many people are doing impressions of their favourite sketch shows from when they were a kid or their favourite sitcoms from when they were a kid. You know that, uh, I don't know, the people just do nothing guys are doing a combination of Only Fools and Horses in the office because they love the rhythms of that. Everyone's copying rhythms, but the the fatal thing is to copy sketch rhythms from the past because they're usually based on how television was then. At the time, yes. Things people don't understand about watching Monty Python again is that when two people sit... In, on chairs in front of a blue background and go minister that's not a python sketch that's what television looked like yes yeah, that's, yeah, that's an course. absolutely accurate parody of 1971 television but if you do that now in a sketch show now you're doing a parody of monty python you're not doing a parody of the news the news isn't like that anymore no, that, uh, yeah that's that's so true you've got to be you've got to be accurate yes and i thought that was what was lovely about doing ladybirds is that they said will get complete authenticity. And the, the joke was they need to be the same size, same weight, they need to smell the same. We thought about it a lot before pitching it. But the idea was, and we came up with the idea, I was having my car fixed and Jason was about to fly to New York and I phoned and a book deal had fallen through. We were ghostwriting something and it had fallen through and it suddenly left a gap in our schedule. We had no work for three months. I went, oh shit. Um, I phoned from the car park of the garage and said, what should, what should we do when we were supposed to be writing this book we're not writing anymore? Uh, and I said, who should, we, who should we phone this afternoon? And we made a list of publishers we could phone. Uh, and we were joking, saying, should we phone Faber and offer them a small palimpsest of war poetry? <laughs> and then one of us <laughs> joked, what about writing to Ladybird and saying, can we write a Ladybird book? And then we suddenly realised we'd been, we'd been in the offices and Ladybird was now owned by Penguin Random House, who had published another one of our books. And we went, oh God, we know we know where the desk for Ladybird is. We can literally just ask. So I think Jason sent an email to our, pers- our contact at Penguin Random House and said, would you let us do a parody Ladybird book if this would... And well, we'd worked out in the forecourt roughly what the idea would be. The idea being it was for grown-ups. Ladybird hadn't stopped publishing. They were keeping yes. going. And the idea was... <laughs> it, 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 the joke was, I said, it's grown up like Star Wars. They're now making Star Wars movies for 45-year-olds. You're now making Ladybird books for... It was a joke <laughs> about nostalgia as in that people will not let go of their childhoods. But... So what would the book be? It would be about hipsters and mortgages and things. And that's a, that's a simple joke. And the other joke is we can't afford to commission any artwork because it's too expensive. Those artists don't exist. It would cost a fortune. So the joke is they've run out of artwork as well. So they're using all the stuff that's in their archive <laughs> to pretend to be illustrating the things they now need to talk about. And the joke is we haven't got the right pictures. Um, that was the crucial double whammy for that that made it work. And they went, oh, brilliant. This is repurposing our old archive. Fantastic. Um, and I think we had a yes within a couple of hours and then that was that was just a job but the job was designed to be can we do what we did with family as in wander in somewhere do a parody of something that looks exactly like like it is and make a joke where the walls of that joke are quite firm yeah so once you've got the walls firm and the walls are those rules we can only use the artwork that was there before we can't paint anything into them the joke is they they own this corporate artwork and they can't change it and also the joke is the original readers have grown up with it, so that's who we're selling to. So let's pretend we're talking direct to them. Those are the two rules. Yes. And suddenly within that, you can do anything. 
Framley was that basically you, you'll only ever see the paper it will just be the, the here are the 10 journalists here are the characters of the journalists here's what they can and can't report simple stuff like we don't swear that stuff once you've got those rules in there that gives you the voice and once you've got the voice you're looking for the places within there where you can be as chaotic and crazy as you want to be so classified adverts or in our case doing something like the hipster which is just gibberish it's just, <laughs> it's just anything victorian can be a hipster cafe um the hardest lady were books to write were the ones where it needed to be about something modern and accurate like dating oh yes or off or offices the office ones we put off for a couple of batches because they were so hard because there were no pictures of anything that looked like an office yeah there were no pictures at all everything looked like a something like a factory from a healing film there were no one was working at a desk with a computer so it was really hard to lie about and yeah dating was really hard because there were no men and women in the same pictures men, oh, me, yeah. men were at work women were at home with the kids i mean that's if you wanted to show a heteronormative couple it was a real dig <laughs> <laughs> weirdly, it, weirdly it ended up being that the the, the 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 gay couples in those books were easier to illustrate because there were always two men pointing at a at a, at a water tank somewhere <laughs> there was much than to find a man and a woman of equal status and age God, oh, we cropped out we cropped out so many people from queues to make it look like there was a couple having a date or a conversation but again that was that was the rules you've got quite a collection <laughs> we ended up doing about 37 before they closed the door and said, don't ever come back and do this again because it's just stupid. But we did loads of them. We tried to cover every corner of human existence by the time we finished them. Um, one of my favourite jokes is letting the audience know that you know this is wrong. Yes. You've done this wrong and you'd sort of, you don't care or you're, it's a bit of a Harry Hill side eye to the camera going, I know it's the wrong picture. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I loved that as a joke. And um, we got a complaint really early on Uh from someone who said, I can't believe that Penguin Random House would publish a book in whatever year it was, 2016, that has so little diversity in it. And I wanted to say, <laughs> you know where we get these pictures from? And genuinely, we there is some diversity in those books, but they're mainly in almost empire-style situations from the 1950s, which you wouldn't like. As in, we can show you pictures, but they're not the kind of pictures you want reprinted. But because that person was right... In a way, we did some research and we found out a friend told us that they had published, the same illustrators had done a range of Ladybird books for the Caribbean, for the Caribbean and, and uh, Indian markets. And so we went and dug those illustrations up, went to some research, got, called them up from the archive. And it was the same illustrators, but with an astonishing range of BAME faces and kids and things. It was brilliant. And I think the second wow. batch of books, uh, stupid. It was a silly objection to hear, but weirdly, the actual effect of it was we went, oh, actually, hang on. This would be, if we could... If we could get around this, we could. And we, we did a bit of research and found out we could. That's great. There's, there's a Peter and Jane series that's Ken and Joy, I think, and they're the, the Caribbean kids. But we, that made... Actually, opened up... Again, as always, it opened up a whole load of jokes we couldn't do before. And it opened up a whole new areas of modern life that we could illustrate, which we couldn't do before. And just change, change the feel of them. We found a voice for it that hadn't been... There have been loads of Ladybird parodies before, because anything that's in culture, there are Star Wars parodies, there are Superman yeah, of parodies. Course, yeah. any, any IP will be parodied by, by people over, but I think we'd... We went for a voice, and again, that set of rules that hadn't been done before. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.